Tonight we're going to continue our study through James. And in our study with James, last time we've, uh, we've covered, through, we covered through chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And I know it's been about a month since we've all been here to sit underneath the preaching for, in, our, in our series in James. And so I just kind of wanted to summarize real quick what Hanley covered last time. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 7 of the book of James, um, James is tackling the sin of partiality. And in, in, in those verses, James condemns the act of showing favor, unfair favor, to the rich, while judging the poor and casting them inside. If you want to put that in today's context, that is pretty much us saying that we accept other people because they benefit us, and yet reject these other certain people because we're uncomfortable with them or they, they, they don't help us at all. They're more of a nuisance. That's pretty much what it looks like today. In other words, this is, this is what people say when, when, they say, when they come to a church or they come to any kind of group, whether it's at a workplace, whether it's at some kind of outing, and they say these groups have cliques and they don't feel accepted. I mean, this, this, is, this is what we're talking about. This is what we're dealing with. And every church, whether we like it or not, we do, there is somewhat of a clickish mentality in there. And, and, and whenever, whenever there's a big group of people, there's always going to be smaller groups within it. And so in our passage tonight, I want to dig a little deeper into our hearts about this, about what does it look like to, to accept everyone, to love everyone specifically. Because... Because in reality, we are always going to have certain friends, certain groups of people that we're closer with. And that's natural, and that's okay. That itself is not wrong. When people start dealing with partiality, with the sin of partiality, we're coming back down to the heart level. And we're talking about what's going on in our heart. What is it exactly that we look for when we look at friends, when we look at fellowship, when we look at groups that we keep, people we want to stay in contact with? Ultimately, it comes back down to the heart. And tonight we'll see that this sin of partiality is no small sin. In fact, there is, there is really no such thing as a small sin. Some sins, sure, they, they, in, in Scripture, they are condemned as greater than others. But in overall sense, there is no small sin. All sin is unacceptable before a holy and infinite God. And all sin places people under condemnation. All sin deserves death. And tonight we're going to look specifically at sin in the context of the law, in the context of partiality, that sin itself. And we will see tonight three ways that the law, because James is going to use that phrase a lot, the law, the law, how that teaches us a lot about sin, how, and we're going to see what the law teaches us about sin in hopes that we will be pushed forward to be encouraged to obey God and His Word. And so if you guys have your Bibles, turn with me to chapter, to chapter 2 of the book of James. And we're going to look at verse 8 to 13. James chapter 2. Verses 8 to 13. I'm going to just read this passage for us. This is God's word. 
If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For, <coughs> for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak, and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Pray with me real quick. Father, I ask for your grace to speak to you. To, to, to just speak, Lord. To speak through your word. That your spirit, Lord, will just pour out amongst our hearts. And that, Lord God, we will really dig deep into our hearts and ask the hard questions. To see sin in our own hearts and see the need for Christ. And so, Lord God, may you shine light upon us. And may we then have open ears to hear your word, to embrace it, and to love it. May all of this go be all be all the more glorious to you. So thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to study more about your word and to worship you through through the preaching of your word. Pray all this in your name, Amen. So the first point that we're going to see in our passage, once I get this working. No? I think you guys have to click it for me. Cool. Thank you. The law reveals the seriousness of sin. We see this in verse 8 to 9. James here reveals the seriousness of all sins, including the sin of partiality. He does so by pointing out in verse 8, the royal law. The royal law. And what is the royal law? Well, the royal law here is is called this because it's the law of the kingdom. It is the law that defines the kingdom. It's the law that the people of the kingdom of God should be holding on to. That this is the the foundation. This is how everyone should be behaving. This is how everyone should be acting. And here we have this law. And James cites specifically Leviticus chapter 19 verse 18. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. There it says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. This is God speaking, and God speaking to Israel. And we know this law. Because we know this law well, because in the New Testament, Jesus, in the Gospels, quotes this same law in Mark chapter 12, verse 31. And he calls this law the second greatest commandment. And that's what we, most of us, know it by. That you shall love your neighbor as yourself. If you're at Leviticus, if you guys haven't turned there, the verse before, in verse 17, it says, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall, re- but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. 
This is the other way of saying that you should love your neighbor. You should, to love your neighbor is not to hate him. Right? And so here we see two sides of the same coin. And here we have then a law, a commandment. That's not just one that you must obey, but it's one that forms and takes shape of your heart. Right? You look at verse 17, it says, Do not hate your brother in your heart. It's something, this law is meant to mold in your heart. It's meant to fill up your heart so that you become the very embodiment, embodiment of this law. It's to love and not to hate. Jesus calls this the second greatest commandment because the law of God flows from this very commandment. Think about it. Obviously, we should not be murdering our neighbors. Not, not daily occurrence, I hope, for any of you. But Jesus takes that commandment further, right? We, we, we notice in, in, in Matthew 5, where Jesus says that if you hate your brothers and your sisters, then you commit murder in your own heart. That is you breaking the royal law, hating your neighbors. But it goes further than that. Think about jealousy. When you're jealous of someone, when you're jealous of something, instead of loving your neighbor and just demonstrating joy and thankfulness for your neighbor, instead you stew up bitterness and jealousy against him. That is not loving your neighbor. Or when you lie, when you lie to someone, when you lie to your neighbor, it means that you're considering your neighbor unworthy of the truth. How is that being loving? And so what we see here is that this indeed is the second greatest commandment because from it, all the other commandments are connected to it. All the other commandments are part of it. And so is the sin of partiality. And that's exactly what James is trying to point out here. And if he didn't make, if he didn't make it clear enough in this verse, he makes it very clear in verse 9. He says that if you show partiality, very specific, if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors, meaning you are indeed guilty of that sin. And so what we see here then is that when you obey the royal law, it says that you, James says that you do well, meaning you are doing well in life, you have blessing in your life. But when you show partiality, you're condemned and convicted as guilty, as transgressors of the law. And here we see that showing partiality does not mean you're obeying the royal law. These two are pitted as opposites of each other in these two verses. Therefore, when you show partiality, when you start to act cliquish, when you don't treat everyone with the same value or same care, with the same love, then you are not fulfilling the royal law. You are not fulfilling the second greatest commandment. Now, the context of James, he is specifically teaching, talking about honoring the rich, the people there who are trying to honor the rich who come through their doors. And, and dismissing the poor. And they're doing that because, because the rich can get them somewhere. The rich can help them. The rich can benefit them. 
and the poor, well, what use are they? And so what we see here then is that being friends, for them, being friends with a rich person means they gain something. But that, that doesn't mean they love their rich neighbors. That means they love themselves, right? That their, their respect and their, their, partial, their partiality towards the rich people who come through the doors, they're really, all, all of this is feeding love for themselves, a personal gain for themselves. And so at the heart of it, that's what, that's what we're dealing with. And, and let's be honest, guys, with our own groups of friends, what do we gain from them? Why do you keep certain relationships more than others? You know, growing up, I, I remember I've, I've always been like the really quiet kid, right? I've, like, can't even test that. I just never said anything when I was a unicorn. Um, and I was just this really quiet person. And what I would do is that I love, I still love hanging out with people. I still want to be with people because I was so shy and so quiet. What I did is I attached myself to like the really popular people, the ones who would talk a lot, the ones who would talk enough to talk for me. And, and I see that kind of same pattern even carrying out for me when I, when I, got, to high, when I got to college. I would, I would tend to draw myself towards the people who are just really popular, who stands out, that everyone seems to flock towards them, and, and, I'll, and I'll try to attach myself to them, to try to be really good friends with them. And it wasn't until I found really kind of my own voice, kind of came out of my shell when I kind of see myself detached a little bit from that. But it's not to say I didn't love my brother when I did that. But there is a sense of my own gain from that as well. My own sin. That I really wanted this friend, not because of him. Because for myself. And so ask yourself the deep questions of what exactly, what drives you to certain people? What what is it about certain people that makes you more comfortable? What is it that you want from your own friends? What is it that you want from other people? James will go on to keep talking about this, but he'll, he'll kind of keep moving towards to show you exactly what is going on. What is at stake here? And so our second point that we will see tonight is that the law requires the absence of sin. We see that in verse 10 to 11. The law requires the absence of sin. James, James continues to, to dig deeper into the sin of partiality, and he doubles down here. He raises the stakes. And in verse 10 and 11, James basically tells us that we have to be perfect. That that we have to be able to obey every single commandment and law that God has given to us. That every T must be crossed, every I must be dotted, no comma, no pure must be left out. We must be obedient to everything. Not that we do, not that we think, every eternal thought, every emotion, everything, everything can be held against us. And indeed, we are all held accountable to the whole law and not just part of it. But why is that? Why is every single little commandment so important? Like, what, why must I forgive someone who hurt me when I'm the being the victim here? Why must I forgive them? 
Or why must I reconcile with this person when it seems like he doesn't want to do anything with me? Why must I become a member of a church? Why must I give money? Why must I give to the poor and to the needy? Why must I evangelize to the person in class or the person who sits right next to me at work? Why can't I just be with my friends at church and hang out and not really do anything wrong? Why must I really make disciples? These are the kind of questions that we tend to ask in our heads but never really vocally say out. I mean, I know I catch myself thinking this sometimes. And so I'm sure some of you must too. Thinking, man, (laughs) I look at the world and I see what they have out there. I see the temptations in the world, the the riches of the world. And and to be honest, I I want some of that. I, I want some of that luxury. Right? I just got back from a trip to Portland and, I, and we're just having fun and you know on vacation trips I don't want to limit myself to a really small budget so I'll just buy things and you know me I love coffee so I just I went to like maybe four coffee shops a day just put money down on coffee because I just want to keep drinking coffee but in reality in reality I know when I come back home I can't be spending that much money as much as I want to but man, wouldn't it just feel great just to have, to be able just to do all that? And in the same way, wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be just nice just to, you know, one day out of the year, just, just go at it with sin. <laughs> just go at it with sin. Dude, I was, you know, you know what made me think of this? I was watching some Parks and Rec. <laughs> and in Parts of Rex, they have this day, two people will have this day, they call it a treat yourself day, where they just go out and they just splurge on whatever they want, no limits. <laughs> what happens if we had a treat yourself day for sin as Christians? But let's be honest, sometimes we wonder, we wonder in our hearts, all these small little commandments, all these things that we know to be sin, sometimes we just really want to do them. And isn't that what temptation is? I mean, temptation isn't temptation unless there's a desire for it. Is it really wrong if I just commit this one small sin? I mean, God, I've been so good all week. And what the problem is with that thinking, what the problem is with that thinking essentially is, is that when we, when we think that way, when we start thinking about the commandments of God that way, we're, we're doing it because we view the God's word, we view all the law, we view all the commands that God has given us as a list of things we can check off and obey. But note here what James is saying about the law. In verse in verses 10 and 11, note here what he says about the law. He says, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable to all of it. And then he says this in verse 11, for he who said, do not commit adultery, but also said, do not murder. If you do not, 
commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Meaning, the reason why every law in here is important is not because of the law itself. It's not because of the commandment itself, but it's because of the law giver. It's because of the one who gave us the law. Jesus here gives us two examples. He lists two commands examples, and both commandments here, he says the same person God gave them. He's the one who wrote them. The significance around that, the significance around that is that ultimately the law isn't about the commandments themselves. The law is always more about our covenantal relationship with God. The law was always about God and His people. Therefore, breaking a law is not just breaking a rule. It is violating your relationship with God. Instead of seeing the law like a list as we see on the screen, instead, we should be seeing the law more. Can you go to the next slide? Whoops. I guess it works now. We see, see the more, the, uh, that's not very clear, but the law itself asks more, more of a string that ties everything together. A circle. Or think about this illustration. Maybe think of the law as a vase. And the purpose of the vase is to hold water. And yet, and every piece of the law is, builds this vase. Every piece is important, but yet if you break one, the vase leaks. It no longer accomplishes the purpose. Every piece of law is important. Therefore, we have to think about all of them together as one. The law is not just a rule book. That's where the Jews got it wrong. That's where the Pharisees got it wrong. They treated the law as a rule, but they thought they, thought they knew them all, and they, they tried to obey every single one of them carefully. And based on their perspective, thinking of the law as a list, thinking of the law as a to-do list, they consider themselves more righteous than everyone else. But though they knew the law, they did not know God. And ultimately, that's what it was all about. It was about for us to come to know who God is. The law was always about relationship between God and His people. But how does that work out? How are we then supposed to view the law in that sense? What does the law exactly look like? How are we supposed to read through the Old Testament and see that? I, I kind of want to show you guys this. Because I want to show you guys that the law itself is always about God. That obedience is less about following rules, but obedience is about displaying the character of God. That's what the law was meant to do. The law was to be a demonstration. The law was to be a, an explanation of what God's character looked like, and it was really exemplified through His people. And that was God's intention and purpose throughout Scripture every time He gave us commandments. Go next slide. It's not supposed to be point three. It's supposed to be still on point two. But we, if you go, even if you go all the way back to Genesis, if you think about Genesis chapter one verse twenty-seven, where it says God has created male and female in His own image, that is the identity that we have: male and female created specifically in God's image. Then in verse twenty-eight, God gives man and woman a commandment. It says to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. That is what the image of God is supposed to look like. 
Think about that for a moment. Think about the ordering of that for a moment. Because God isn't saying once you fulfill, once you fill the earth, once you subdue the earth, then you will be formed into God's image. God isn't saying that. God is saying you are ready, my image. Now go live it out. Go populate the earth. Go be my kingly representation in the earth. We see the same, we see the same pretense, the same understanding when we look at the people of Israel. When they, when they received the law from Moses, that all happened in Exodus chapter 20. Right? The Ten Commandments happened in Exodus chapter 20. But in the chapter before, in chapter 19, Exodus chapter 19, verses 4 to 6, it says, God says this to Israel, You yourself have seen what I did to the Egyptian, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possessions among all people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Note here that God has already delivered them from the bondage of Egypt. God has already blessed them. God has already redeemed them. God has already declared to the world to see that these slaves, these people who are descendants of Abraham, these are my people. And now God speaks to them and saying that you are my kingdom of priests. You are my holy nations. Now go out and portray my holy character to the world. And it's only after God says this in chapter 19 of Exodus that God declare the Ten Commandments that we see in Exodus chapter 20. The Ten Commandments and all the law that follows it afterwards. Everything, the rituals, the sacrifices. All that was meant to explain how Israel was supposed to display God to the rest of the world. And Israel lost sight of that. Mankind has lost sight of that. The law was always about God and our relationship with Him. The law are not qualifications to save us or to bless us. The law is about how God's people is supposed to look like. And if you are one of God's people, if you belong to the kingdom of God, then this is what you must do. To fulfill the identity, you must obey the commandments of God. Obey the royal law because that is your identity. So then let me then bring us back to James. James is emphasizing the importance of all this. The importance of the law itself and why God is behind it. He's emphasizing all this because, because guys, when we are being unfair impartial to others, when we treat others and value them unequally, when we, are, when we are showing favor to others and dismissing people that we just don't see as valuable, what we're doing is that we're not displaying God and His character. We're not displaying specifically His love, His compassion, His mercy for people. You're saying, you're saying to these people that you're not worth my time. But not only that, but because you have a relationship with God, you're also saying that God 
views you the same way. That is an absolute misrepresentation of who God is. And that is why the sin of partiality is so serious. How we treat others, how we speak to them, how we, how we you know, show compassion to them, how we behave before them, our attitudes towards them, all that speaks to who our God is. That is what is at stake here. These commandments are not just rules. They are a direct representation of what is holy and what is good. And so James emphasizes all this. And then in verse 12, he tells us to speak and to act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Here we find our next point. That the law releases Christians from sin. The law releases Christians from sin. Let's take a deeper look into verse 12. James here says to speak, to act. This is this here, this this whole aspect of speaking and acting, James cares a lot about that. I mean if, if you have ever read through James before, you know that James continually urges Christians to speak and act faithfully. To, to not just talk the talk. To not just believe, but to act out your faith. To walk your faith. Right, this, is, this is similar to people who trash talk a lot off the court. But once you get on the court, man, their game is totally different. Let's stop trash talking and let's start playing the game. The Christian life is not just internal spiritual thoughts. The Christian life is a lifestyle. A lifestyle lived outwardly on display towards others. And here James says, speak and act. How? As those to be judged under the law of liberty. And here he describes the law as the law of liberty. The law of liberty here. Law of liberty here, we, we had to take a deeper look into that. Because here it was saying that, that the law itself frees us. Right? It's a law that frees you. But how is that so? Because we understand what temptation feels like. And the reason why we feel temptation is because we desire Something We desire to sin. But what keeps us from it is the law. Doesn't that mean the law puts boundaries? Contains us? How does the law free us? We have to think about this for a moment. We have to think about this ultimately in the case of how we're to be judged by God. You see, we are all created in the image of God. Everyone. Every single one of us here. And every single person ever born is created in the image of God. And in His image, we are supposed to glorify Him. We are supposed to portray Him. We are supposed to exemplify God Himself. Everything about Him. And that is our innate purpose. 
We were created for worship. But ever since the fall, ever since Genesis 3, we have been enslaved in a sinful nature. That we are born into a sinful nature, unable to fulfill a God-given purpose in all of us. We are chained by our sins, struggling and fighting to be free, struggling and fighting to see God, to imitate Him. And we simply cannot break those chains. Our sinful nature binds us in darkness, binds us from the truth. Our sinful nature tells us lies and causes us to believe that we can make our own purpose. That we can find fulfillment and satisfaction apart from God. But you see how that is what enslaves you? You see how that is what's keeping you from fulfilling your glorious purpose as the image of God? It is no wonder that Paul writes in Romans that we are all slaves to sin. And because we're all slaves to sin, when God judges us and judges mankind, judges the world, He declares everyone, everyone as unrighteous. Everyone has fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23 And what we see here is that God's judgment itself is impartial. That everyone in this world is born to sin, therefore everyone in this world will face God's judgment. There is no partiality in God's judgment. But that is exactly why this word here, this word that we have is liberating. See, James here isn't just thinking then about the Mosaic Law. James isn't just thinking about the Old Testament. But James is also thinking about how Christ fulfills all of that. And when Christ fulfills all of that and Christ came to this earth and Christ died and went to the cross, He has freed us from this judgment of God by taking the punishment that we deserve and placing us in us His righteousness that we do not deserve. James here sees the law in the light of Christ. He calls the law as liberty, as something that frees us because Jesus Christ fulfills it and Jesus Christ frees us from our sin. Jesus Christ sacrificed His life to atone for our disobedience. And indeed, we are transgressors because all of us have broken some law before, some law that God's commanded, and therefore we are transgressors. But Jesus Christ took that. We who are convicted as transgressors of the law now stand in righteousness because of what Christ did on the cross. And this is why in verse 13, James reminds us, James reminds us that judgment without mercy to one, judgment without mercy to one who has shown no mercy, meaning if we do not demonstrate mercy to other people, then we will be judged in the same way, meaning we will be judged as unbelievers. But as Christians, as brothers and sisters in Christ, as children of God, 
We have no excuse not to show mercy to all people because we personally know the mercy of God. We have seen it in our own lives because Christ went to the cross for us. And that, guys, that is the most amazing thing about our passage tonight. Because though God's judgment is impartial, God's mercy is also impartial. God's mercy is also impartial. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 to 5, it says, God, who is rich in His mercy, rich in it, deep in it, filled with it, saved us, raised us back to life because we were dead in our transgressions. And guys, when we are dead, it means that we can't do anything. God is the one who raises up again. And God here does not show any partiality in His mercy. Isn't that the most wonderful news you have ever heard? Because what that means is that no matter how many times you have sinned in your life, no many times that you have broken the law, no many how many times you have transgressed against God, no matter how many times you go back to the same sin, no matter how broken your background is, no matter where you come from, no matter whether you're rich or you're poor, no matter whether you're smart or you're average, <laughs> no, matter, no matter whether or not, no matter who you are, whatever ethnicity, God's mercy is there for you. God's mercy is impartial. God doesn't look at all that. God sees you in all your unworthiness and says you are worthy to be saved. And that that's amazing. James ends with a great statement. In the last sentence of verse 13. Mercy triumphs over judgment. It does. It does because Christ. Christ took our judgment and we receive mercy. Isn't that amazing? Take a look at your own lives. <clears throat> None of us deserve to be where we're at here tonight. None of us deserve to be here in this room. I don't deserve to be up here preaching this word. It's only because of God and His mercy that we are all gathered here. God in His impartial mercy that welcomes all people no matter who you are, no matter how much you have messed up. So our big idea for tonight is that Christ and His impartial love for all is displayed in our obedience to God's Word. Again, this goes back down to what we've seen throughout history. That God has given His identity first. God has looked at you and said, you 
I choose you. I adopt you into my family. I bring you into my kingdom. Now you go out and live as my people. Therefore, therefore guys, let us then go out and live out this royal law. Let us go out and love people. Love them like no other. No matter who they are, no matter from what background they have, no matter what ethnicity they are, no matter whether they're broke or they're rich, no matter if they're jobless, no matter if they're working minimum wage, no matter if they're some manager or CEO of a company, no matter if they're a startup, they can come from a wealthy family, they can come from a broken family, they can be divorced, they can be married twice, they can be married three times, they can be pregnant, they can be pregnant out of wedlock, it doesn't matter. Because God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son for it. For the sake of the world, meaning everyone. Every single person, no matter where they're from. All of them can now have a chance to enter the kingdom of God. Let us go display that kind of love. The love of God that He has shown to us. The sin of partiality is no small sin. There's no small sin because the sin of partiality completely misrepresents who God is. God has done so much in your life. And therefore, guys, let us then go out and live out God's mercy for others. Let me then encourage you with these practical thoughts as we think about our own sin, think about your own sin, partiality. And other sins that you may be able to struggle with. First, come and know, come to know who Christ is. Right? Again, everything starts with our identity. Everything starts with us knowing who we are. Knowing who we are as Christians, knowing who God is. Come know who Christ is. Come know who He is and have a relationship with Him. How He has redeemed you. Come read the law that describes this book, the Bible, the scriptures that describes who Christ is, who describes who God is. Come know Him. Come know your great Savior so that you can be made like Him. Second, be aware of your own sinful nature when you engage with others. Remember God's own mercy in your life that you yourself were nobody and God saved you. Think about our own sinfulness. Think about, think about yourself. Think about why you might be treating some friends better. Why you might be thinking highly of other people and thinking lowly of others. Think about what's the struggle going on in your heart and realize that you are still indeed a sinful person. Even if you have been saved, that doesn't make you better. It's always Christ. It's always about Him. And in God's eyes, we are all sinners. And yet in God's eyes, we are all still worthy to be saved. Finally, love others for the sake of God and not for yourself. Because sometimes when we struggle with partiality, it's, it's because the person we're trying to show love to doesn't reciprocate. And that happens. And that's hard. I understand that. 
And sometimes some people are just harder to deal with than others. And we have all faced situations like that before. And I understand that. Sometimes people just don't respond to us the way we expect them to. And that can be discouraging. But remember, and when we go out to love others, it's not for the sake of them to love us back. When we go out to love others, we do it because God has loved us and we want to point them to that same God. Remember what the law is about. Love others to yourself. Second greatest commandment. But it's the second greatest commandment because the first greatest commandment is about loving God. That means we point everyone else to do the same thing. To put God first. To love Him. We don't have to win every soul. We don't have to make every relationship the deepest. We're simply called to treat everyone with love and compassion no matter how they respond to you because that is exactly what God did for us when He put Christ on the cross for us. We responded. We responded in hatred against God. Yet by His great mercy, He saved us. Now let us then come to Him, love Him, know Him, and spread His love to others. Let us demonstrate God's compassion, God's mercy to everyone else. Pray with me. Father, Lord, we thank you, God, that though our sins are many, your mercy is more. What a wonderful truth that is. Lord, may that be then the cry of our hearts. May that stir our hearts up, God, to worship you, to come to know you. But Lord, may that also stir our hearts then to display you to the world. May we be light in this world. May we be salt in this world. God, I pray, Father, that your love will move us in such a way that we will be bold for your gospel. God, we will love others. We will love others and we will show them love for the sake of your character, for the sake of your holiness, to show them how much you love them. And so, Lord God, I pray then that our hearts then will continually be refined by you. Work in us, God. We are not finished products. We are still just as weak, still just as useless. But yet we have this treasure in us, this gospel, this Christ, who is amazing and who can transform lives and raise from the dead life. What a great God that we have. May you then get all the glory. May you then get all the praise. Thank you, Lord, for everything. I pray all this in your holy and precious name. Amen.